Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're talking about raising good humans. We're joined by Hunter Clark Fields, author of Raising Good Humans. Hunter is a mindfulness mentor, coach, host of the Mindful Mama podcast, and creator of the Mindful Parenting online course. She coaches moms on how to cultivate mindfulness in their daily lives. Hunter has more than 20 years of experience in meditation and yoga practices and has taught mindfulness to thousands worldwide. Hi, Hunter. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited for our conversation. Thank you for having me, Cassie. It's so nice to be here. So let's start off with what is reactive parenting? It's kind of the whole basis of raising good humans. So can you define that for us? Sure. Reactive parenting is when we're reacting out of autopilot. We're just triggered by our kids. We're saying stuff that our parents might have said to us or that we kind of hear in the zeitgeist. We're not really thinking. We're not responding, right? We want to be responding rather than reacting. But reacting is basically being reactive is just your child has a behavior. It triggers something in you. Generally, it triggers some stress. You know, we're all great when things are going well. We're great parents. We're not, you know, when we're happy and relaxed and playful, we can be amazing parents. It's like when things are difficult, then that's when we get reactive. And that's when we have unskillful old habits kind of coming out of our mouth. So what's going on in our brains when we're in this reactive state? I think that's the most interesting part. I mean, I discover this because I was very reactive. I was struggling and I was, my temper arose and I was yelling at my little toddler. She was so cute. And it was just like the worst. This is not what I wanted to be. And I had to kind of start to understand it because we tend to really blame ourselves. We tend to be really hard on ourselves. And I, I was, I was, you know, like a pitiful puddle of tears and that was not helpful. So I had to understand it. Like, what what can I learn from this situation? How can this, I can make this challenge my teacher? And I really started to under, learn about the brain and what's happening with the stress response. And really, you know, we're all just wired for this. It's the the stress response is making it so that we react as quickly as possible to survive some threat. Like we know this, right? It's like the proverbial saber tooth tiger. You don't want to have to like stop and think about it. Like you just want to fight, flight or freeze, right? That's that stress response. But basically what's happening is your muscles are tightening, your heart rate is racing. And in the brain, it's the amygdala, which is this like, there are these two little almond shaped clusters kind of in our brainstem. They're like basically the oh crap areas of the brain and they 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 trigger this stress response throughout the body and they make it so that we bypass the slower parts of the brain so that we can react quickly and survive whatever threat is happening and so unfortunately the slower parts of the brain are like the prefrontal cortex behind our forehead which is you know some people believe it sort of evolved later it's that rational thinking part of the brain. It's our impulse control. It's the last part of the brain to fully develop in children. It finally develops in our early 20s. You know, it's in charge of verbal ability, logic, problem solving, impulse control, creativity. These are all the things that we want to be able to have access to to parent well. 
But when we're in this reactive state, we just literally just don't have any access to it. So I found that incredibly frustrating because I was getting stressed out by my kid and I would learn from like great, really good parenting coaches about how to respond and what to say and how to you know say this instead of that. And I would remember nothing, nothing when I was in this reactive state. It was so frustrating. So it became obvious to me that the, you know, I had been studying mindfulness for a long time, but the tools to calm that reactivity had to be like the foundation of any kind of parenting response that was happening at all. Why is it important for a parent who's in this reactive state, their parenting stress response is activated to take a step back and actually understand why they're reacting that way? And following that, how do they start to take steps to to quiet it when they're communicating with their children? Well, I think it's super important to just understand the biology of our reactivity, first of all, to so that we stop blaming ourselves. Because it's not like anyone woke up in the morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to like freak out and scream at my kid at two o'clock. No, you know, we don't do that. No one does that. Right. So when we stop blaming ourselves, we can and shaming ourselves, then we can just, you know, we we're able to it's very practical to not blame ourselves so much because then we're able to kind of pick ourselves up and, and learn and try again. But also understanding that stress response, you know, there's kind of two things that can really trigger it, right? And one is, you know, we can we can be triggered by stress, but also we might, you know, something our child might have done may cause an outsized reactive state in us because of our own upbringing, right? It might actually not be just like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm, <laughs> I'm exhausted. It might be, oh my God, when my child doesn't listen to me, suddenly I feel like I'm seven and nobody's listening. You know what I mean? When we start to understand these things, we can say, we can then say like, then we have a chance of kind of doing anything about it, right? It's it's not until we we really understand what's happening that we have any kind of chance to to do anything about it. And and we also tend to blame, we blame ourselves, we blame our kids when we don't understand these things. And that that just is not fruitful, just not helpful. So let's let's be kinder to ourselves and use some practical logic as well. (laughs) And you mentioned mindfulness in your journey. Can you talk about that and how it can help stressed out parents? Sure. I knew it from my own experience. So I was, uh, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person and I was a highly sensitive kid. And I was like on a roller coaster of emotions when I was a kid. And when I was up, I was like enthusiastic and life was amazing. and, ah. And then I would like kind of fall into these pits and I, my parent, I was a hard kid to parent. I know, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I really was struggling and I want, I needed some help. And that's started when I started reading and studying about mindfulness. And when I finally actually started practicing with a mindfulness meditation, when I was 28, it was this life changing thing for me where before I used to be, you know, every week or two, I'd kind of be subsumed by the waves of life. Like it, life would be too much for me. I'd be overwhelmed and I, you know, I would kind of drown in my feelings. And 
after a mindfulness practice, I was able to kind of ride those waves. I never kind of fell into these pits. I just stopped falling into these pits because I was able to surf these waves. So it was this huge game changer for me as far as me being able to have that space between stimulus and response and have more equanimity and and things like that. And so for parents, it does all those things. And we also now know from the research that it really, really works. There's like this overwhelming mountain of research. Like I think uh, I mentioned in Raising Good Humans that Johns Hopkins at one point did a meta study of studies with like 47 different studies or something that show that mindfulness practices reduce depression, reduce anxiety, increase feelings of well-being and and all of those things. And it helps us with our impulse control, right? Like, and so this, these are all these things that we need to parent effectively, right? We want to be able to use our whole brain. We want to be able to be that calm, grounding person because so much of parenting is modeling, right? Like our kids aren't going to be able to know how to do any of these things except by watching us. So as, you know, a mindfulness practice can kind of builds that non-reactive muscle in us. And it, and it's funny because it can kind of feel like you're anything at all. <laughs> it can feel like, like I remember uh, like two or three months into my own mindfulness practice, I remember thinking, gosh, I just sit here thinking for 10 minutes like this is BS. I'm not doing anything. All I do is just sit here for thinking for 10 minutes like this isn't working. And But then I realized like, oh, I hadn't fallen into these pits. I think of it as this like brain hack where like the members in mindful parenting, they they notice like they notice when they aren't doing it. They're like, oh, now I see the effects when they they fall off the wagon for a week or two. They're like, oh, now I understand that it has really sort of it gives us this grounding to be able to uh, like be that solid mountain in the chaos of kids. It sounds like it's almost an absence of those waves versus an actual state of mind when you're in it. Like it sounds like if you just keep doing it, you may not notice it right away, but it ultimately makes a difference. And I think that's a I think that's a good promise too because mindfulness can seem like this very large thing. It can seem really daunting, really hard to begin, and I like that what you said because it feels like maybe that's a better entry point for some parents who don't know where to start. It's very practical. It's just like, I think at some point, you know, at some point in like the early 20th century, people thought it was weird to go and exercise. They thought of like men in in like unitards with leopard print, like doing fitness, <laughs> you know, like, and it was this weird thing. that. And now we all know that it's really good to take care of our bodies and exercise. And I think that ultimately... It'll be the same way with mindfulness, whereas right now it's not totally, you know, the norm that everybody mm-hmm. does it. But I think it's going to be accepted that to be, you know, the untrained mind is a, like kind of like a crazy wild puppy dog and that to go through life a little, a little more clearly and a little more <laughs> calmly, you know, we need to train the mind a bit. Absolutely. In your book, you write about moving from autopilot to being present. Can you talk about more about this and what that might look like? Sure. I mean, auto autopilot is kind of how we're going through most of our days. And and it's not like when we talk about going from autopilot to present, it's not like we're saying, Cassie, 
you need to go be be a hundred percent present all the time. You're going to turn into the Dalai Mama, you know, like <laughs> you, you're not, it's, it's, this is not what it's about. It's just about kind of shifting the ratio a little bit. Like, but autopilot is, you know, when we're just automatically, we're checking off the to-do list, we're doing this, we're doing that. And our brains tend to kind of jump to what's the next thing to do? What's the next? What's the next? We're not appreciating the the moment. We don't tend to slow down. And that's normal, right? That's just normal human behavior. It's like adaptive to, you know, it wasn't very adaptive to pause and appreciate the beautiful tree or flower in front of you. <laughs> but when we can move from autopilot to present is an incredible gift. And especially as parents, it's an incredible gift because that's the only place we can be present with each other is in when our mind and body are together. That's the only time we ever feel as humans really heard or ever really seen, right, is when somebody is really connected, you know, in that way. For me, there's a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, who that's really a driving kind of motivator for me in that way. And he said, when you love someone, the best thing you can offer is your presence. How can you love if you are not there? And to me, that just says it all, right? Like, we just want to be able to, you know, we're not going to always be there. It's okay. But we want to be able to be there when we choose to. That's such a powerful quote. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the stress response and you briefly mentioned a, a trigger that might bring a parent back to their seven-year-old self. Can you talk a little bit more about how parents can understand their own triggers, especially that parenting might bring up for them? This is a challenging thing, you know, and it's it's in raising good humans because it's so, so important. And it's something that you know, and a lot of things in Raising Good Humans can be, a whole book can be written about them. <laughs> but I think that it's so important to understand in a kind of more general parenting book, because it's a huge piece of how we're reacting to our kids, right? We have, we all have baggage from when we're little, from our culture, you know, we, we now know from books like The Body Keeps the Score and the research that, you know, that a lot of that even generational things are even ingrained in our DNA. When we start to unpack what was our childhood like? What were our parents like? How did I feel when, you know, my parents set a limit? What kind of limits did they set? What was discipline like? You know, all of the, when we start to unpack some of these things, we can start to examine our assumptions about what how kids should be and how parents should be and things like that so that we can be conscious of the choices about our values that we're making right if we don't do some uncovering with that these unconscious things can really drive us and they can lead to outsized reactions to little things like there was um a mindful parenting member you know she just would like freak out when her toddler spilled juice and like toddlers spill stuff all the time like that is very normal developmental behavior but it caused this feeling inside her that like this is unacceptable right and that feeling was triggered from when she was little and her own upbringing and you know she got this message of that appearance was so important and perfection and 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 then even as an adult like that her home the appearance of her home this is important for her worth and her value and so 
you know, if she didn't hadn't taken some time to kind of unpack that and like, look at, oh, I'm freaking out in this situation. What's going on here? Why do I feel so, so bad about it? Then it, when, and when she, she wouldn't have known. And, w- and when she knows, like, it's like, it takes the power out of it, right? Like once you're aware of it, it's like, oh, that's that thing again from my childhood. It just kind of deflates the, you know, once we're aware of, of those things. And, um, yeah, and parents can understand their own triggers. We we have some questions in raising good humans, and I think it's something that parents can unpack on their own. It can, they can unpack with a therapist, with a friend, journaling about it, and it's just just helpful to do. Then we we can pass at, at least give our kids some lighter baggage than we were given. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like self-awareness and a curiosity to where your reaction is coming from is just so important in general in parenting. Yeah. Yes, definitely. In your book, you talk about how yelling is a solution that is actually a problem. What are some things parents can do to yell less? I know yelling is a is a big thing. We just it's also good to remember that that's our stress response happening, right? But we think like if we just say it louder, you will listen. But that it the problem is it like it triggers, you know, we're larger than kids and then when we yell, it's scary and it triggers kids fight flight or freeze stress response and then you know we know that it cuts off access to the logical thoughtful parts of their brain right so they're not going to learn anything that you're teaching if you're teaching when you're yelling it's not coming in and it's actually creating disconnection it's actually making your kids ultimately less likely to want to cooperate with you because they don't feel so connected right so since that connection is the glue, we really want to yell less. And I, I'm glad that you said yell less because we're human beings. You are going to yell sometimes and that's okay. Like you have permission to be human. You're going to yell sometimes and your child will survive. That's okay. We just want to yell less. Yelling less, it, it comes down to sort of two things. And one is kind of in the long term, we want to build that non-reactivity muscle and lower our stress, right? So we want to, you know, get regular sleep, get regular exercise, have time with supportive family and friends to lower our overall stress, right? Because if you have high stress in general, you tip yourself, it's easy to tip that stress response over, right? And then be yelling. Uh, likewise, it helps to slow down and have less things on your schedule so you're not rushing, right? Those all add to the stress. So in with that goes your mindfulness practice. Like the mindfulness practice really builds that non-reactivity muscle in the long term. So those are big asks. I know those are huge asks, but this is what it takes, right? Is like, and ultimately they're the most important things because, you know, we get all caught up. We think, oh, I should bring my child to Disney World or I should make sure they have these six different classes and blah, blah, blah. And really, no, like you should make having time with supportive family and friends, getting enough sleep and creating the conditions so that you can be grounded is actually the very best thing you can give to your child. Way, way better than Disney World and six different classes. So build that non-reactivity muscle in the long term. And then in the short term, 
we can yell less by starting to recognize our feelings, recognize them out loud, like name it to tame it was coined by uh, Dr. Dan Siegel. And it just means that as soon as we recognize our feelings, like I'm starting to feel frustrated right now, it's like, right? Like that, that pressure valve is releasing, you know, we're slowing it down. We're actually modeling healthy emotional intelligence there, you know, and then we want to do all the things to calm that stress response that we can. As soon as we recognize that we're getting triggered, then we want to say, oh, okay, maybe we need to remove ourselves. If our child is safe, we can do that. But we have to just generally lower that stress response. So you can do it through, you know, the breath is cliche because it works so well. We can use mantras like, this is not an emergency. <laughs> I'm helping my child. Um, we can actually like shake it out like like the zebras do after a lion chases them, they get all, they like shake their whole bodies. Like we can shake the stress out. There's tools, right? So we want to learn those tools to just reduce our stress response and make reducing our own stress response a priority. And that is how we yell less. I think that's important too, to talk about the importance of the parent caring for themselves. And earlier you mentioned, you know, getting rid of some of that self-blame. I want to ask about the perfection paradigm when it comes to parenting and why it's really important for parents to break that. Oh, God, it's so frustrating because, you know, we we want it's, it comes from us wanting to do our best. But it's a big thing, especially for women, the idea of perfection, that we have to do everything perfectly or else we don't we're not worthy and we of course we want to do everything perfectly for our kids but it's just it's really fruitless because we are human beings that make mistakes we are all human beings that make mistakes and that's unavoidable it's not like we can perfect ourselves out of having difficult feelings, out of having chaotic, messy moments as a parent, like that's just not going to happen. Like parenting is chaotic and messy a fair amount of the time. And I think perfection really, when we're aiming for that, we really end up with nothing's good enough. Like nothing is good enough. And so we can start to, you know, when we read about it, when we hear about it, maybe in a podcast, we can start to recognize, oh, yeah, I got a little bit of that. And we want to really aim to a mind for a mindset of good enough parenting, because ultimately good enough is like the very best you can do. And actually, it would also, it would be bad for your kid if you were perfect, because if you met every one of their needs all the time ever, they would be an insufferable human being, first of all. <laughs> like, who wants to be with that person? I don't know. You like failing them in, in manageable ways, right? We're not talking about major traumatic ways, but like the manageable ways we fail our kids all the time, like by giving them food that they may not like and not necessarily having the attention to attend to them every second and whatever it is, right? Like just being human. Like that shows them yeah, you know, the world doesn't revolve around them. They can have, be upset, things cannot go their way, and they will survive. And that's a good thing to learn, right? Like that they will still be survive and be loved and, and life goes on, right? So perfection wouldn't be desirable for kids, even if it were possible, but it isn't even possible. So, uh, so, so let's cut ourselves some slack, people. Yeah, move from perfectionism to good enough.
Join Hunter Clark Fields online for the 2023 Raising Good Humans Summit. From July 11th to the 14th, 16 leading experts will provide lively discussion and practical guidance to help you cultivate greater self-compassion in the face of everyday challenges, transform generational patterns of reactivity, and discover your own pathway to mindful, conscious parenting. Sign up today at www.newharbinger.com. And what role in mindful parenting does self-compassion play? You know, in mindful parenting, like I I talk about mindfulness as a foundation, but really self-compassion is kind of the foundation for mindfulness because it's that idea like we are going to mess up. We are going to be imperfect. I think of self-compassion very practically. Like when we blame ourselves and we tell ourselves, oh, I'm a terrible parent. What's wrong with me? And things like that. Like it leaves us like feeling unable to get up from the floor. We're not good parents in that state. We can't function very well. It all, in some ways, like our pity party can be kind of selfish, right? Because we're not able to show up for the people in our lives because we can't recover from our mess ups. On the other hand, if we can practice self-compassion, we can say, oh, that sucked. I lost it at my kid. I scared them. That was terrible. That sucked. Ugh. It's hard. This parenting thing is hard. And you know what? It's okay for me to mess up sometimes. And I'm just going to start again. And, you know, ugh, this is hard. And I'm putting a hand to my heart right now because it's like, we're all going to be there. We're all going to be in that moment, right? When we are sad and disappointed in ourselves and things like that. But if we practice self-compassion and we are a little kinder to ourselves and we remind ourselves that everybody feels this way sometimes hunter has felt that way plenty of times then we can say okay well we when we give ourselves grace that way we can pick ourselves up more easily right and begin anew again and that's what i think is so important to parenting is that we are gonna mess up so we need a process to be kind to ourselves to begin anew again because it's part of the package is that it's messy and sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's ugly. And and in order to water the positive seeds, in order to, to do that, you know, be kind to our kids and have compassion for them, we got to give it to ourselves. In your book, you write about an acronym RAIN and how it's helpful to help parents remember a mindful path through difficult feelings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Rain, you can learn about in a lot of different mindfulness circles. Tara Brock has made it famous. And I just love it as just a simple process for processing difficult feelings. And this is so important in parenting because, you know, we're modeling. We're modeling all the time. And a lot of us weren't taught. <clears throat> we don't know how. We were just told, don't cry or go to your room, right? Like we weren't taught what to do when we have difficult feelings. We were just said, you know, for many of us, our parents just said basically don't have them. And that's not very helpful. So we have to kind of reparent ourselves and RAIN is a way to do that. And RAIN stands for recognize, accept or allow, right? I I recognize I'm feeling anxiety right now. I'm feeling nervous, right? So I recognize it. Okay, there it is. I'm like, and then I accept, allow, and acknowledge it, right? That A can stand for a lot of things. And that just means like the more we fight something and try to push it away, the kind of bigger and badder it gets. But in fact, if we say, okay, yes, you're here. I accept that this is here. You know, I even sometimes 
Thich Nhat Hanh used to teach, like, imagine your difficult feeling is like a baby in your arms and you're saying, yes, dear anxiety, it's okay that you're here. I'm going to take care of you, right? So accepting it is huge and hard and it's practice. And then I stands for investigating it. I wonder why this is arising. Oh, then we might understand some things about it. And then nur- N stands for nourish with self-compassion, so or nurture. And um, and that just means, you know, okay, gosh, dear hunter, you know, or dear self, this is hard. This is, you know, it's hard to be human. You know, this feeling is, you know, is here. What what are the words that we can say to ourselves? What would we say to our dearest friend if they were feeling the way we're feeling in that moment, right? How can we offer that hurting part of ourselves some compassion? It can feel sort of a little airy-fairy kind of thing, but it's actually incredibly practical because, all right, I'm going to share with you the metaphor that someone shared with me. It's really gross, but so effective. <laughs> um, sometimes they're big feelings. We can think of them as these emotional hamburgers, right? Like it's a giant hamburger. But when we try to just push them away, it's like we have no digestive system. We have no way to process these feelings. And it's like when we eat this emotional hamburger, this giant hamburger with no digestive system, like what's happening with this? Like it's going to come out in some way. It's going to be horrible, right? So we want (laughs) rain is like... (laughs) your emotional digestive system, right? It's just a process to process these feelings. And uh, the more we practice it, the easier it gets. And it becomes this just thing that we can do on the fly and just a way to to work it through. I'll never look at a hamburger the same way. (laughs) (laughs) So now that the parents have you know, gone through the rain process when their difficult emotions come up. And we know that what parents are doing is modeling for their kids. Do you recommend any tools for parents to employ when helping their children through their difficult emotions? Yeah. So like you said, modeling, that's the number one. When when we can go through something like rain out loud or, you know, say, oh man, this is hard. You know, we can voice some of these things out loud then that's really great modeling for our kids. And then with our kids, when they're having difficult feelings, we just want to help them process it, right? So the number one best thing we can do is practice just to really be present. My daughter, who's now 15, had a big emotional storm the other night about, you know, she was upset at me and her dad and there was about a swim practice and blah, blah, blah. And she was just in kind of an emotional tailspin. And so I sat next to her. I went to put an arm around her and she didn't want that. So I just sat right next to her and I just breathed deep into my belly, long, slow exhales. I didn't say anything. I just was there, right? Like that being there and listening is really like 95% of the things that we need to do to be able to help our kids process their difficult feelings. You know, just listening to her and really practicing to be present, to practice grounding myself so ultimately she can borrow some of my calm and and those emotions become contagious. And we can also like listen to them like by reflecting back what they're saying you know, acknowledging like their feelings and their emotions. Our verbal brain can help kind of process our emotional brain. And we can do that for our kids through um, some storytelling, especially when they're little. One time my daughter was 
she got very upset. We had all these plans. I got changed as we entered her grandparents' house and they had to leave. They weren't at the house when we got there. And when we got there, she took a shower and she was just sobbing even as she got out of the shower. And I was like, oh, and I went in and I wrapped a towel around her. I was like, oh, we started this morning. We were expecting this and this. And then we drove and this happened. And then this happened. And I told her the story of her day. And it was like almost like a an external processing. And as I told the story, eventually she just listened and she just leaned against me. And, you know, she was like, yeah, like that's it. And that listening, that being present, we don't really have to solve our kids' problems. We just have to be that that presence, that listening presence. I think maybe sometimes we undervalue the importance of feeling heard. Yeah. I know our our instinct is we want to make the problem go away. We want to solve it and make it go away. And that isn't actually that helpful. There's sometimes a place for that. Like once you've listened, once you've acknowledged, hey, I have some thoughts, you want to hear them. But it's really about being heard, really about being present. And in your experience, what are some barriers of that communication that come up between parent and child that prevent that listening? Definitely the advising and offering solutions <laughs> is a barrier, right? Yes. A lot of times our kids need to talk to us and we kind of stop the onion from peeling by saying, oh, well, here, why don't you do this thing? It can be really annoying. We all have people in our lives who we just want to talk to them and then they start to solve our problems and we're just like, ah, it's not that helpful. It's the the secret of this is very universal. It doesn't matter about the age. Um, but, you know, other things that can be barriers are blaming and shaming are, are barriers. You know, why didn't you do this? That kind of thing. You know, those are also barriers advising, offering solutions, all these can be barriers. It's really about getting out of our head and out of our judgment and getting into a mindset of curiosity and receptive listening. And I think most of us have heard of the the I statement communication tactic. Can you talk about how a parent might use this when communicating with their child? Yeah, I statements have been around for a long time, but they're so helpful with communicating with kids because you can't, it's hard to argue with an I statement unless you're kind of doing there there are, is possible to do them incorrectly but you know if I say to my kid for instance my recent memory I can remember when my daughter's my one daughter was going into adolescence and was starting some of the adolescent attitude and things like that and when I said to her honey when you talk to me like that I feel really sad I just can't. It makes it hard to talk to you. And she would just go hmm, and walk away. But then she wouldn't, it would kind of like slow it down. The thing is, there's not a lot to argue with. You know, I'm not, I'm being honest. I'm being very open and vulnerable, telling her how her behavior makes me feel. And there's nothing to argue with there. What's she going to say? No, it doesn't make you feel sad. That is, doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> so so when we can use I statements, we can use them in kind of a, a limit setting capacity with our kids. And it's actually a lot more effective. Like nothing is 
the silver bullet or button that is going to make your child an instantly obedient robot, right? (laughs) Like that doesn't exist. But the lot of the things we say, like the barriers, like we can give commands, do this, don't do that. They can cause a lot of resistance. But when we say, "Ah, I feel so frustrated when the backpack is on the floor again because I trip over it and I makes it hard for me to walk, right? That there's less, there's not as much to argue with than a command or a blameful word. Another thing you write about in your book is win-win problem solving. Can you talk about what the steps are in this? Sure. Win-win problem solving is basically based on the premise that we can usually solve most problems. <laughs> so everybody's happy if we can get underneath the layer of solutions and to the layer of needs. So the first step in win-win problem solving is to like, I often ask parents to like, put it on a big piece of paper, write down what your needs are and what are your kids' needs are. And if your kid says, my need is to have a sleepover right now, you think, okay, well, what will that do with, for you, right? Oh, you maybe your, your need, underlying need is connection with your friends. When we have a conflict, if we can instead say, what are, what are your needs? What are my needs? And how can we make everybody's needs met, right? Then if we, when we look at this underlying level of needs, then we can come up with lots of different solutions to the problem. And especially if we involve our kids in the problem solving. So step one is to state the problem in terms of needs. What are your needs? What are my needs? And then we want to think about how brainstorm ideas, right? Like just throw out all the ideas we can. And we, I like to encourage people to write them all on a big piece of paper, even especially if your kids don't read, can't read. They love it when the words are written down and their needs are written down and they're taken seriously because they're often not, right? Usually it's a parent pushing down the solution. So if we can say, okay, what do you, what ideas do you have? Should we get a, a giant cleaning robot? All right, I'm going to write that down, right? And then, then we can kind of open the door for kids to offer ideas. And then you can kind of see what things will pop up, but you can go through the list and just put a check mark against ones that meet both everybody's needs, uh, X out the ones that don't, and a question mark of the ones that, you know, you might have to talk a little bit more about. And then you... You know, step four is to kind of say, okay, well, we're going to try out this, this, and this. And then step five is just check back in in a week or two, you know, to check back in. Is it still meeting everybody's needs? And what's nice about this is win-win problem solving involves your kid in the resolution. Like, and the parents, you don't have to have all the solutions. You know, you can say, okay, we have a problem. This keeps coming up. Let's figure it out. And when the kid is involved and, and they're, ideas are taken seriously, their needs are taken seriously, then they're much more active in the solutions. And you don't have to be like the enforcer, which is no fun. When it teaches them good problem solving skills. Exactly. Like the whole idea of like, I am the authority and what I say goes is not an effective problem solving (laughs) tool for when your child is one day in a workplace with some people, right? Absolutely. And as we start to wrap up, can you talk about how mindfulness helps parents to raise good humans? Well, mindfulness is uh, the idea of cultivating a mindset and an attitude of attention to the present moment with an attitude of kindness and curiosity, right? It's kind of the opposite of judgment. And it helps us to raise good humans by 
helping us to like accept them, uh, you know, and see them clearly, right? To see past our assumptions and society assumptions and instead be curious and accepting of who they are as they shift and change in so many different ways. And, and this curiosity and attention really just leads to compassion and love. And that's, that's really what kids need, right? They need, you know, loving attention and acceptance. And that is what helps them flower. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Hunter, for joining us and having this really important conversation. I think parents are going to get so much from it. A kinder, more compassionate world starts with kind and compassionate kids. In Raising Good Humans, you'll find powerful and practical strategies to break free from reactive parenting habits and raise kind, cooperative, and confident kids. With this book, you'll find powerful mindfulness skills for calming your own stress response when difficult emotions arise. You'll also discover strategies for cultivating respectful communication, effective conflict resolution, and reflective listening. In the process, you'll learn to examine your own unhelpful patterns and ingrained reactions that reflect the generational habits shaped by your parents, so you can break the cycle and respond to your children in more skillful ways. When children experience a parent reacting with kindness and patience, they learn to act with kindness as well, thereby altering generational patterns for a kinder, more compassionate future. With this essential guide, you'll see how changing your own autopilot reactions can create a lasting positive impact not just for your kids, but for generations to come an essential must-read for all parents now more than ever. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologist Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Help your clients achieve lasting emotional balance with the DBT Skills Mega Bundle from New Harbinger Publications. This essential collection offers everything you need to effectively deliver dialectical behavior therapy in your practice, including a set of eight exclusive microskills videos to help improve client motivation in treatment. Visit newharbinger.com for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.